It's time for Legally Speaking on a Thursday on CFAX 1070. Michael Mulligan joining us as always, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Michael, a pleasure. Good morning. Good morning. Great to be here. Lots to talk about this week, including lots of talk about what is and is not involved in deliberations of a jury in a yes. criminal trial. Rather big one taking place right now, as our audience knows. That's right. Of course, uh, local, uh, locally significant, right? The uh, Barry case and yes. the jury out now, I believe, for the third day. Um, so I think there are a few things that are worth knowing about how that works, what the jury's told, and how it, what occurs after the jury goes out to deliberate. What are they doing? How does that work? So the first thing to know is that at the end of a trial, and this one went for five months, the judge is required to do what's called charging the jury. And the process of charging the jury really involves two things. First of all, the judge will summarize the evidence, which itself can be an interesting um, thing. For example, in a case like this, she would summarize the evidence of the accused, right? Sometimes, in my experience, the summarizing of evidence can come across more clearly than the quality of the evidence originally. Uh, so that's something to be sort of paid attention to, but that's one of the tasks of the judge. Another task of the judge is to tell the jury what the law is. Uh, and in that regard, one of the common instructions a judge will give to the jury is they'll say, look, you're the judge of the facts. Your task here is to decide, you know, what evidence you accept and don't accept, what facts, conclusions you come to. But the judge will say, I'm the judge of the law, and I'm going to tell you what the law is. And the judge will say, it's important that you follow the law as I lay it out for you. Because if I, the judge, am wrong on some point, that's something which the Court of Appeal can correct. As long as you do what I'm asking you to do. If you go off and apply some other interpretation of the law, nobody's ever going to know about that, and there's no way to fix that problem. Now, the reason nobody's going to know about it is that in Canada, jury deliberations are secret. It's actually a crime to disclose uh, the contents of the deliberations uh, by jury members. It's a crime, not it's just crime. an offense, but a crime? Wow, yeah. okay. And that's different from the U.S. In the U.S., you'll actually see juries come out and they'll start being interviewed by the press and they'll all start working on their book deal in some high-profile case or whatever it might be. Indeed. We don't have that. Uh, and I think that's good. You want people to be able to talk back there and not worry about, oh, my God, uh, you know, that other person on the jury who hated me is going to be blaming me for some outcome or other. The other thing which occurs in this case and in most cases now is the judge will give the jury a written copy of the judge's instructions. And I think that's healthy because, of course, the law is complicated, as we well know, uh, and uh, you can hardly imagine what it would be like if you were on a jury You've never thought about some of these legal concepts before. And somebody in one, you know, four-hour session... <laughs> and you're going to remember every element yeah, of that. No, that's okay. right. Some call, you know, there are four parts to this test. There are three things you must be concerned with. You can think how that would go. It would be like telling somebody, look, you're going to have one afternoon of law school. And now we're going to ask you to go do a really, really important exam, the outcome of which will determine the uh, course of events for somebody's life. Yeah. That would not be so much fun. So the judge will ordinarily give the jury a written copy of the instructions so they can go back and reference that and so back they go to deliberate when juries go to deliberate almost invariably they are going to be what are what's called sequestered which means they are going to be kept together to deliberate uh, they're not going to be permitted to you know go and listen to the news or read the newspaper or talk to other people about the case they will go in as a group in a room the sheriff will keep it secure they will have a copy of the judge's instructions. They'll have paper to make their own notes. And they'll have access to the exhibits from the trial itself. And then they're told to go at it. Um, 
the jury needs to be unanimous. Uh, there is provision made for uh, juries to ask questions, and that happens with some frequency, right? There'll be a, you know, some debate about some issue or some point of law will be unclear. That will usually occur in a written form. If the jury has a question, they could write down what the question is, or they could request, for example, the replay of some evidence because everything is recorded. That request would then go out to the judge. Usually the judge would come up with some proposed response. Judge would call in the lawyers and say, look, this is a question I've received. Here is my proposed answer. What do you each say about that? Any submissions? Thank you for those. Bring the jury back in. Give the explanation or answer. And sometimes that can be absolutely critical because you'll see decisions come from juries, you know, half an hour after the answer is given. The written question will be marked as an exhibit, and that's how that works. Um, juries will deliberate all day long. They take their meals together. A sheriff would take them to a restaurant. They would sit there together and have their meal. They're not permitted to go home at night. They would be put up in a um, uh, put up in a hotel uh, so that they're not being influenced by friends or family or other people talking to them. Um, there's actually a case out of Vancouver from a number of years ago now where a a judge thought the jury was going a little bit long after a few days. And I think the impression was that perhaps they were in it for the free meals and hotel accommodation. <laughs> and the judge actually directed that they be moved out to UBC and put up in the dorms at night. So the, and that produced, the least that comfortable produced, accommodations. Yeah, that, produced, that produced a judgment uh, a bit more quickly. <laughs> uh, the, well. ju the jury will be told they're required to be unanimous, right, in their decision. Um, some things the jury are not, however, told. They're not told, for example, what the sentence would be if there was a conviction. Like, they wouldn't be told, look, for a second-degree murder conviction, the mandatory sentence is life in prison, and there's some range of parole eligibility. They're not told that. They were charged on manslaughter. They would not be told what the sentencing range might be for that, so they know nothing about that. There are some examples, like in that Latimer case, the uh, farmer uh, who uh, killed his severely disabled daughter, where after the jury convicted and they were told what the mandatory sentence was, life in prison, they were aghast and in tears over that outcome. Because but, that would have prejudiced their findings if they had known. Yeah, that, and sentencing is a role for the judge. The jury, yeah. in a murder case, interestingly, there's this oddball provision where the jury can make a recommendation non-binding on the judge with respect to parole ineligibility. Um, uh, and one, another thing they're not told is that uh, they might at the end of the day be unable to agree and how that's to work out. Um, the way that plays out usually is if after a few days they just can't come together with a decision one way or the other, you'll often see uh, in those cases a note coming to the judge saying, we can't agree or we are deadlocked six to six or, you know, one person will simply not change their opinion. We cannot come to a unanimous verdict. When that happens, and you wouldn't expect that in a case that ran for five months, at least for a few days, because it'll take some time just to review five months' worth of evidence and a big, thick booklet of instructions, right? Uh, and if, however, that comes back, some message like, we just can't do it, mm -hmm. um, the judge would ordinarily begin by giving the jury what's called an exhortation, which is essentially calling them in and saying, look, we've been at this for five months, you've heard a lot of evidence, you have to be true to your oath as a juror, but... You know, listen to your other jurors. Please keep an open mind. Please go back and try again. This is a difficult matter for a lot of people. Please go back and try again. And then they would usually, the judge, uh, allow the jury to go back after they've been exhorted to come up with a decision. They'd be given some additional time to do it. But if finally they can't do it, 
the mistrial would be declared, and then it would be up to the Crown to decide whether to start again or not. But they're not ordinarily charged at the beginning telling them, well, you might just not agree, and that's an option for you. They're told you must be unanimous so as to encourage them to come to that point. So you've told us in the past there are two conditions that must be met for criminal charges to be brought. One is there a substantial likelihood of conviction. Two, with the bringing of charges be in the public interest. What is the test to bring another trial after a mistrial? Those would be the same tests that would be applied, but you might imagine how those things could, those judgments might be affected by uh, previous mistrials. Probably not on a second go-round, but what happens if you had a six-to-six jury couldn't agree you try again for another five months, the same thing happens. You try again, the same thing happens. Perhaps at that point, if I ask you the question, is there a substantial likelihood of conviction? We've run this evidence two or three times, and every time we run it, uh, we cannot get a unanimous jury verdict. That might uh, cause that calculation to be changed. The second part of the charge approval threshold, the is it in the public interest to proceed, yeah. there's going to be a high public interest in trying to get a result in a murder trial, but at some point, you might say, look, we've been at this for two years and three or four times. We can't do it. We're just packing it in on some combination of those tests. The other thing which can occur is there can be issues about have you had a trial within a reasonable period of time. If you try to retry things, that can become even more complicated because now you've got witnesses who have testified, for example, you know, two or three times. So now you've got like multiple previous versions of events, plus they've given some other version of events to the police, and so now you've got all these different oh, yeah. uh, versions, so that can make uh, that uh, more complicated. And then there could be other issues about things like the effect of publicity, right? Now you've had this thing all over the news, perhaps multiple times, and what impact is that having? Um, so we're still at a, in a, at a point in the particular case that's uh, going on now mm-hmm. where given it's a five-month trial, we're not at the stage where anything would be unusual about a jury being out for three days to consider an important case, a mountain of evidence and uh, complex instructions. Uh, But, you know, it's a difficult job, and I should say this, one of the other benefits uh, that we have from having the jury system, not only does it bring community values to the justice system, but even though the jurors can't come back out and discuss what was said in the jury room, At the end of it, you disperse these 12 people back into the community who have had to do that very difficult, perform that very difficult uh, function. Um, And that's important in and of itself because uh, when you look at a case from afar and you're not involved in it, sometimes you think, well, how hard can this be? Uh, You know, I read some summary of that. Surely I could figure this out. But when you're somebody's actually in the position of, no, you've got to listen to these witnesses. This is the quality of the evidence. This is how high the burden is. Now go back and decide that. That is a daunting task with a really important outcome. Uh, And I think it's a valuable thing in terms of general confidence in the justice system that you have people doing their civic duty, serving on juries, and then going back into the community and can report on, well, how did that go? Right? Was that a fair process? You know, how was that, you know, what was that experience like? And almost invariably, when I speak to people who have served on juries, and you don't ask them, of course, what was in the jury room, but if you ask a question like, how was your experience? How did you find that? Almost invariably, the response is a positive one. Um, and I think that's an important thing as well. So there's a, there are a lot, of, uh, a lot of things going on here in terms of the, uh, the justice system, the community, the two-way feedback about that thing. Uh, and we are lucky to have the system that we have and that uh, members of the community can make collectively these important decisions.
And I think there's some magic, perhaps, or maybe wisdom would be a better way to put it, uh, in requiring unanimity amongst a dozen people. Right? If you if you are able to persuade twelve, you know, regular people from different backgrounds of some uh, state of affairs, that's probably a pretty reliable way to do it. Right? You know, because you, if it wasn't, the odds are at least one of them would disagree. It's a yeah, fail fast method. That's yeah. right. If you have sort of one or two people, maybe you wind up with outlier outliers and you know oddball approaches to things. But if you have twelve people and they all hear it, uh, and you can get all of those twelve people to agree on something, uh, that's an important protection. So. Yeah. There we are. All right. Let's take a quick break. Legally Speaking continues in just a moment on CFAX 1070. You made iHeartRadio Canada's number one app for radio and podcasts. Now, your free music app is adding artist radio. Type in your favorite artist in the search bar and instantly create a radio station of your favorite artist and their peers. Don't like a song? Skip it. There's an artist radio station for whatever mood or occasion. Download the iHeartRadio app free and access over 1,000 radio stations, the biggest podcast library on the planet. And now, you get to create your own music feed with artist radio. More information on iHeartRadio.ca. What's the best way to score an upgrade on your next beach vacation? Impersonate a celebrity and throw a tantrum? Nah, just be you. It's sell-off vacations, upgrades for all sale. Save on the all-inclusive vacation you want. Get the upgrade you deserve. But act now. No impersonation required. Visit our store at the new Belmont Market in the West Shore. Selloffvacations.com For over 25 years, Raffel & Brown Window Fashions has been a proud dealer for the entire line of Hunter Douglas products here in Victoria. We have become one of the largest dealers in Western Canada and can promise you a great price always. Right now, take advantage of the Hunter Douglas End of Summer Sale event at Raffel & Brown Window Fashions. Visit raffel-brown.com for more information about Hunter Douglas products and to book your free shop-at-home appointment. Thanks for calling 1-800-GOT-JUNK. This is Sarah. How can I help? Can you help me get my yard cleaned up? I've got junk piled everywhere. Sure, we can do that. What if quitting time comes and they're not quite done? We work until midnight, seven days a week. Can you come right now? We can be there in 90 minutes. Can I mark this down as spring cleaning for next year? We bring the springtime with us. Wow. When you want it to feel like springtime, call 1-800-GOT-JUNK. Or visit 1-800-GOT-JUNK.COM. We can make it springtime anytime. Finding space in the fridge around Thanksgiving is a challenge. Well, Thrifty Foods has made it easier. Reserve your fresh turkey online and pick it up at the store at a time that's convenient for you. All you have to do is choose. From Fresh Canada Grade A, Alex Campbell's Signature Series Traditional, raised without antibiotics, or organic varieties. Hurry before they run out. Place your order today at thriftyfoods.com pickup. Last day to reserve a fresh turkey online is Wednesday, October 9th. Thrifty Foods. Eat happy. Smiley face emoji posters, map checkers, phone call makers, swipers, likers, and status updaters. We see you. Bumper to bumper, at a red light, just waiting your turn at a four-way stop. We see you. Because your cell phone hiding antics aren't a match for our tactics. New tools, new techniques, new ways to catch distracted drivers. Think you won't get caught? It's only a matter of time before we see you. Brought to you by your local police. All rise. Court is now in session. The judicial system. Think it's balanced? Think again. I've been in court before. I know how this works. You think you know, but you don't. Not yet. Monday on CTV. Go out there and kill it. 
Your Honor. A new judge who wants to shake up the system. His voice matters. It's important. And bring down. Objection. Sustained. The hammer. In my chambers now. Get into All Rise. All new. Monday at 9. Only on CTV. See a problem in traffic? Call us at Star 1070. If it's happening, it's here. CFAX 1070. You're listening to Adam Sterling on CFAX 1070. Legally speaking, continues Michael Mulligan with Mulligan, Tam, and Pearson. Before we wrap up how jury duty actually works and what happens while a jury is deliberating, I've had lawyers tell me in the past, Michael, that anyone with a legal education is effectively banned for life from sitting on a jury because the example of the sentence that would be required from a finding of guilt in a murder trial, for example, an ordinary person like me might not know, but you'd hope somebody with a legal education would know that. Yeah, and I guess the other concern would be what happens if you wind up with somebody with a legal education that doesn't really know what's going on, like is wrong, oh. but you would also imagine what would happen if you had that person with some uh, trying to sort of take over and tell people what it would be oh, like, yeah. oh, don't worry about what that judge told you about uh, <laughs> this or that. I recall what that was. I went to law school 20 years ago. and This is what the law was. You can easily imagine how that would knock things off kilter. So uh, lawyers are out. It's interesting now, though, that the uh, we've just had a change to how jury selection works. And one of the things which happened was removing what are called preemptory challenges, where yes. lawyers, without articulating a reason, could challenge a prospective juror. Uh, that's now gone by the wayside, although subject to some challenges. So it's going to mean that we're going to have, a, I guess, a more random selection of people winding up on uh, juries and perhaps some uh, greater scrutiny as to how the panel is arrived at, uh, which has been an issue over time. It's like, well, well on what basis are you uh, calculating this group of people to bring in? Um, you know, have you used the voters list? That might exclude certain categories of people who might yeah. be less likely to be on the voters list. What have you done? Um, and then there's also an issue, I think, about uh, people trying to avoid jury service, right? Oh, my goodness, I have a small business. I've got to work. I have child care responsibilities. And one of the other problems is if you exclude all people with businesses, jobs, children, uh, all kinds of things to do, you, you wind up with a uh, jury panel. You kind of look at them and say, well, this doesn't exactly look like the group of people that I would walk by on the street. Um, you wind up with a group of, you know, retired people or people that work for the government or have, you know, some ability to leave work without uh, some consequence. So that's a live issue, too. Next case. In a test case, the B.C. Court of Appeal up upholding an award of special costs what does all that mean yeah well first of all i, I chuckled when i read the name of the defendant uh, in this test case from the court of appeal the defendant is the empire life insurance company uh, uh versus uh, the mom and pops insurance company we're the empire insurance yeah the company. empire insurance company if you want to take on the role of goliath you might wish to name your insurance company the empire life insurance company not the uh we care friendly home uh, uh, coverage company, but there it is. They've uh, the Empire Insurance Company. So this case involved that issue that you just mentioned, the issue of awarding special costs. And we've talked about costs before, and the basic concept there is that if you sue somebody and you are the successful party, will ordinarily uh, receive from the party who was successfully sued. Um, the unsuccessful party will have to pay a portion of the legal expenses of the party who sued them. They do that, we have that rule, for a number of reasons. One reason is that it encourages settlement, right? If somebody sues you with very good reason 
and you know full well you're going to lose, don't drag the process out because in addition to having to pay the money you would have been on the hook for anyways, you'll also pick up a portion of their legal expenses. Bad idea. It encourages you to sort things out. Um, so that's one of the reasons. Also, from a fairness perspective, hey, you know, if you're uh, legitimately aggrieved, you bring a case, uh, you shouldn't uh, wind up uh, effectively getting nothing because all of your money that you got went to pay the lawyer that you hired, right? So that's why we have it. But ordinarily, costs are what are called party and party costs. And what that language really means is that you're going to get a portion of what your actual legal expenses would be. You don't just turn. You don't just hand in your lawyer's bill and you get a check from the other side. The reason we ordinarily have it done on that basis is that if you had somebody have to pay the full legal expenses, it might actually deter people from engaging in the legal process for fear of winding up with an actual giant bill. Let's say the other side hires, uh, you know, some high-powered, uh, expensive. Uh, law firm to defend them. You might think, oh my goodness, I can't carry on. If I lose, it's going to ruin me. So we have sort of a balancing. But judges have discretion to award what are called special costs. Those used to be known as solicitor client costs. And the idea of that would be, no, the other side has to pay the actual legal bill, right? You get all of it reimbursed. Uh, and ordinarily, those sort of uh, that solicitor client or special legal costs would be used in cases where, for example, a party is en- engaged in some egregious conduct in the course of litigation. Like somebody took the approach that you've sued me with some meritorious claim, but I've just done everything in my power to drag this out, bring a bunch of unnecessary applications, stymie everything, run up your expenses trying to grind you down. That's the kind of conduct which would ordinarily produce the judge saying, look, you're going to pay the actual costs. You engaged in really abusive behavior in the course of the litigation. The case that just came out from the Court of Appeal was a test case. It was actually the lawyer for the person on the appeal was Joe Arve, who's a luminary in the legal community. Yes, he is. And the issue was this. The person making the claim against the Empire Life Insurance Company uh, was making a disability insurance claim. Um, She had a a job, she was diagnosed with MS, um, and uh, then she wound up using drugs in response to getting MS, uh, and her doctor eventually said she was unable to work due to anxiety and depression flowing from the MS until further notice. She had this uh, uh, disability insurance, which was supposed to pay her $2,084 a month, but the Empire Life Insurance Company said, no, we're not paying. Uh, and so she wound up going on CPP disability benefits for 1000 bucks a month, well below the poverty line. So she brought this claim to get her disability insurance paid. She was able to find a lawyer who specialized in doing that work and spent years pursuing this claim. I think it was four years. The lawyer incurred $50,000 in disbursements, charged a small fraction of what uh, their going rate would be to help this person out pursue the claim, and won. Yes. Uh, and so there was an award for $66,000 in past benefits and aggravated damages, and Empire Insurance was told, start paying the disability benefits. Well, then came this issue of costs. And the lawyer didn't claim that Empire Insurance had engaged in that kind of egregious conduct, like drawing the case out or making you know, baseless applications just to grind down the other party. But they made instead the uh, application that all of the legal fees ought to be paid because that would be necessary in the interests of justice, right? It's only fair that this person who 
would receive only this uh, modest amount for disability coverage and is disabled and unable to work, saying, look, uh, she should get her full cost paid. The full I like cost. that. Yeah. I find that to be very appropriate. I'm glad that that was the case. And the judge did it. Yeah. Um, the insurance company appealed, Empire Insurance Company, given that they're a large empire, they appealed it to the Court of Appeal, uh, and they lost. Uh, Joe Harvey was successful there, and the Court of Appeal found that uh, they went through that analysis we talked about, about, look, do you want to deter litiga- litigation? You don't want to have crushing costs, but found that in cases like this, particularly these kind of disability claims where you've got somebody who's going to be impoverished, trying to bring a claim against a large insurance company for disability benefits, and in a fact pattern like this where otherwise it's going to mean that this person who is disabled receiving this modest amount of money uh, would wind up paying a substantial portion of their legal fee, le- you know, legal expenses from that modest award, that justice required that the Empire Insurance Company pay the actual, although modest, legal fees charged by the lawyer who pursued it, who yeah. pursued it. So it's a change in the law, and I think one for the best. Oh, Mr. Arve, extremely capable legal counsel. Never had the pleasure of meeting him myself, but I am familiar with his work in many, many important cases. So. And he does take on these sort of important test cases, and yeah. uh, he's moved the needle, and this is an example of that. And, you know, we have a, a common law system, and the, the law moves, and the Court of Appeals sort of made that point. You know, the, it doesn't usually make uh, uh, lurching movements one way or the other, because that would create an atmosphere of total unpredictability. But the law is something which can progress and move, and in this case, the needle's moved uh, in that direction, and I think uh, in a direction that's all for the good. I agree. Michael Mulligan, pleasure as always. See you next week. Thank you. Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers in the second half of our second hour every Thursday, legally speaking, on CFAX 1060.